Good evening, everybody. Um, my name's Kate Jenkins, and I'm vice chair at the LSE, and I'm also a member of the government department. Could I start by welcoming you all very warmly to what we certainly in the government department regard as a very special evening. We're delighted to have Shirley Williams with us here this evening, and um, some of us are absolutely fascinated by the answer to the question she's posed us this evening. I think we will learn a very great deal. Um, this year, as many of you know, is particularly interesting for us at the LSE because we have um, taken over the operation of the Women's Library, which is a major addition to our archives and our library in, in the school, and we're absolutely delighted that we've been allowed to take this over and continue its existence for many years into the future. So this is also the first evening on which British government, which is the programme which is behind this particular lecture, and the Women's Library are jointly sponsoring this particular event. Um, very exciting for us, because many of you will realize that much of the Women's Library material is of immense significance to the study of politics and government in Britain in the last 200 years. So I think we are all going to benefit enormously from this new synergy. We have Shirley Williams here this evening. Um, and she's said to us, do women make good political leaders? I think some of us might answer that fairly rapidly, but it's going to be very interesting to hear what she has to say. She has, is one of the most distinguished British politicians of, the, of her generation, and for many of us an icon of political determination, keeping going through all the ups and downs of political life. She certainly has been for my life, because I can remember first seeing her speaking as chairman of the Fabian Society too long ago for either of us to remember, but was nevertheless a very memorable occasion for me. She was a member of the Labour Party and a Labour MP from 1964 to 83, and she's written memorably about the difficult time she went through in deciding to leave the Labour Party and join with three other senior members of the party in setting up the Social Democrat Party in the early 1980s. For that party, she was president for a number of years, and I think it was a very interesting example of the way in which really intensive and careful leadership can produce a remarkable change. It was all too short for many of us, but it was a very significant effort and episode in British political life in the 1980s. Before that, she had been a cabinet minister in the Labour government in the 1970s, and there again our paths crossed when she was the minister most involved in the difficult issue of introducing maternity leave and pay in the early 1970s when it was not a popular or a politically um, acceptable subject to have. And we had to batter through a great deal of opposition to get what was then a very early maternity leave and pay legislation for women in this country, which I'm glad to say in slightly different shape and form but has remained in place ever since. She was, all, she was secretary then for um, prices and consumer protection and also secretary of state for education and very much involved in the introduction of the um, comprehensive education system. 1988, she moved to Harvard and began effectively a new academic career. She was a professor of public service at Harvard at the Kennedy School and for two years was also director of the institute of politics. She stayed in Harvard until 
the end of the 90s, 96. I think. 96, sorry. Um, and returned to London, where she has been an extremely active member of the House of Lords. She was leader of the Liberal Democrats in the House of Lords um, between 2001 and 2004, um, and has remained extremely active. I met her last year when she was apparently not having any sleep at all dealing with the NHS bill, which I think received very major changes as a result of the pressure that was put on the government at that time. We now, I think, turn, Shirley, looking forward very much to what you have to say to us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, uh, Principal. Um, may I begin by saying thanks to Kate James because something she said, which I didn't know, has given me a very great deal of pleasure. Um, and this is that, in fact, um, the taking over of the Women's Library, which is indeed a remarkable archive, um, which has been like an orphan wandering from one college or university to another in a desperate attempt to find a permanent home, and yet is an archive of extraordinary value, one of the rarest in the history of the women's movement, because there are very few such archives. And to hear that it's ended up in the LSE gives me a great deal of pleasure, because the LSE is a very lively place. You can't sort of go to sleep here. You might get bitten, you might get stung, but the one thing you can't do is go to sleep. And that means that the Women's Library will now get, I think, the kind of attention it deserves, and the kind of argument and discussion that it's all about creating. Tonight what I'm going to talk about um, is uh, quite broadly about the position of women in contemporary society, in our own society particularly, but not only in our own society, because I think we are now in a situation of a very, very interesting time, but a curious time. So let me begin by saying that I shall talk a bit about begin by saying how strange it is that in all the countries of the world, let alone all the democracies, the United Kingdom now stands at 68th in the list of countries of the world in its proportion of women in Parliament. Now, the proportion of women in Parliament is only one of many, many tests, one of many, many measures, if you like. But for us to be 68th is pretty extraordinary by almost any measure. So one of the things I'm going to talk about a bit is why it is that the United Kingdom seems to be a country which is at one and the same time offering equal status to women and yet somehow seems unable to deliver that in practice in terms of women therefore being roughly between a third and a quarter of uh, the government system. The second thing I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to begin with it actually, um, is looking at my own life which covered... two-thirds of the 20th and 21st centuries so far, and looking at the way in which attitudes and styles of life have changed. And then finally, I want to talk a bit about the leadership of women, where it's actually happened. In our case, it's usually defined in terms of who is the head of government, or sometimes the head of state, and to see whether there's any significant difference between leadership by women and leadership by men, And if so, what is the relevance of that leadership to the challenges that now face our country, our continent, and the world? I promise you I shall give ten minutes to each, so you won't be sitting here for hour after hour after hour. Well, let me begin then at the beginning. When I was born, which was in the 1930s, 
My mother told me that one of the things that was characteristic of her own parents was that the, if a boy was born to a family, the activity of the local Buxton Business Club, they lived in Buxton, Derbyshire, was to hand a cigar round to the company, which was entirely male, of congratulations at the birth of a boy. If a girl was born, they expressed commiserations and said, better luck next time, old boy. Now, that was a rather mild form of what, of course, is still characteristic of a very large part of our world, which is the celebration of the birth of of a boy and some horror, sometimes amounting to rejection, at the birth of a girl. And that can, to some extent, be associated with cultural activities. For example, let me take one example, which I was discussing with a very prominent member of parliament from the Pakistani parliament at lunchtime today, and that is, of course, the devastating financial consequences of the diary system. We hardly ever think about it. But when you think the birth of a girl in Pakistan or in other particularly Asian and Middle Eastern countries comes, in effect, with a price tag of what may be as much as the equivalent of 20 or 30,000 pounds, you can see how that ancient cultural artifact actually has much greater consequences than one might realize. Let me take another cultural factor which arises from this historic distinction that people make between boys and girls. I think I'm right in saying, it was certainly right two years ago, that in China there are now a surplus of 35 million men. That's 35 million men under the ages of 45. The reason for that, of course, was the one-child policy, which allowed people to move on uh, to having a boy if they only had no birth credit to them. And that, of course, in turn brought with it in certain rural areas a certain level of female infanticide. That's also true in India. There is a substantial surplus in rural parts of India of boys over girls, more than can be explained uh, by the normal birth rate, which gives a very slight edge to boys for the straightforward reason that nature knows that fewer boys survive to the age of five than girls do. They're not as tough in the early years of their life. So what we're looking at, and I'll put that on one side, though it's something that's fascinating for you to discuss, is what do we think will happen to that very large surplus of young men. It could mean a warrior people, a warrior race. What at the moment it means is a certain amount of of, uh, invasions, as it were, private invasions, into particularly countries like Laos and Cambodia to try to find wives for Chinese young men who can't find any wives at home. They very, we readily, readily read about that, but it's actually quite an important factor. And also, of course, another important factor is that girls from the most deprived parts of the world then become not dowry receivers, but for the first time economic assets because they may be able to be sold or passed over to families that are able to pay for them in return for their being brides for their sons. It's quite a big, important social factor. And incidentally, for those of you who are pondering what to write for your PhD, It's almost unexplored territory and one that's well worth looking at. But let me go back for the moment to Britain and ask ourselves about the set of attitudes and factors that indeed had a major effect on the future prosperity and lives of girls. The very first thing to say, and this lasted right up until the time when I was education secretary in the 1970s, was a very widespread belief that 
boys and girls had rather different brains. The phrase that was quite often used was hard subjects and soft subjects. Soft subjects were foreign languages, literature, history. Hard subjects were science, particularly physics, the exception of botany, which being it a soft subject, was one of the oddities of the whole uh, attitude towards different disciplines. But the other important factor was that among the young women, the general belief was that therefore they should be directed towards foreign languages, English literature, history. What were known as soft subjects, doubtless the extreme irritation of a number of academics in this audience who would not accept such a description of their own discipline. Boys were thought to be appropriate for hard subjects, and they were essentially mathematics, and as I've already said, the sciences, particularly physics and chemistry. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that in the process of making within the comprehensive schools many more schools co-educational than used to be the case, there has been a very rapid increase in the standards of A and O levels among girls in the very so-called hard subjects in fields like maths and the sciences. There's been, I'm afraid, not an equivalent change in the so-called soft subjects, many of which have suffered as a result, in particular foreign languages, which are not well taught and not very widely taught in a lot of of, of British schools. But it's worth pointing out that that distinction between hard and soft subjects was a very significant factor in educational policy in this country right up until the 1970s. Now it's almost been abandoned as a way to think. The second point that I would make, and I'll illustrate it with a story, is the perpetual problem of a lack of confidence among girls. It's still there. It's amazingly hard to get rid of. I'll tell you my story. When I was education secretary, one of the ways to create comprehensive schools was to combine a boys' school and a girls' school together into a single larger school which could therefore sustain a much bigger sixth form than a small single-sex school was able to do. And that was always a key factor in the comprehensive policy that many people don't appreciate to this day, was that the schools had to be able to sustain and teach a sixth form and a fifth form, which meant that all children could have a go at going on to higher education. Not just the figure, but the capacity to do that depended upon a sufficiently large sixth form to offer a range of subjects. What was very true about those schools when they were combined was that we set out to overlook and monitor the appointments of the head teachers to those schools. I remember becoming very angry because as the first batch of schools, several hundred, chose their head teachers, the ratio of men to women was roughly four to one. And I was very determined to root out discrimination. I knew that the women who'd been heads in girls' schools were of the same sort of quality and experience as the men that were heading boys' schools, and I found it very hard to understand how this ratio could have come out in this way. And one of my civil servants said to me, a thoughtful man, why don't you look at the applications? So I asked my civil servants to look at the applications. The applications were four to one. Four men applying for every headship to every one woman. And it was only when you looked at the applications for deputy headships that the ratio suddenly changed into four women to every one man. What was that about? Because after all, the women heads already had leadership positions. 
It was essentially about their own rating and assessment of themselves. They simply didn't see themselves as good enough to head a coeducational large school, even though everything in their experience and their background suggested that they could. The men were much more ready to think themselves up to this, able to cope with the new challenges, than the women were. That has changed remarkably little. Even now, when I talk, for example, to young women aspiring to go into politics, or go into the law, or go into the area of finance and the city, exactly the same thing comes out time and again. I'm not sure I'm up to it. I'm not sure I'm good enough. Now, I don't know quite, we can talk about this later, and I'd be happy to hear any comments on it, but I don't, I'm not quite sure I know how you tackle this. It was Freud who said that biology is destiny, and perhaps he was more right than I like to think at the time, because there is still this pervasive feeling among most women, not so much always young women, but often women in their 20s, that their prospects and their capacities are remarkably limited. The third thing that I want to say about this early stage, this base, if you like, foundation stone for distinctions between men and women, is the sense of, in this particular country, and here I come to look at us, this is a country which is remarkably clubby. It's a country which is, I think in many ways, coloured and shaped by the idea of clubs. Now that sounds innocent enough, except that most clubs in the professional levels have for a very long time been exclusively male. And most pubs at the professional levels, the blue-collar professional level, have been predominantly male. The places in this country where people gather together are to a remarkable extent sexually differentiated. Not so in a country like France, where when you go out to dinner, you almost invariably see people of both genders there. Then in Britain, where an awful lot of those dinners actually happen within clubs or within pubs. If you look at the most clubby professions, the ones where clubbing is characteristic of the style of the profession, it matches very neatly with the extent to which there are women at the top levels of that profession. Let's be precise. The area where women are almost excluded from the top level is, of course, business and even more finance. We still have a pathetically lower level, less than 15% of our major companies have got women on the board at all. And in many cases, they don't have any, particularly that's true of the financial companies, the banks and the financial services companies. Now, it's very odd because if you go over and look at journalism, there's a high proportion of women who are economic journalists. Stephanie Flanders is just one example, but there are many more, some of them, by the by, hailing from this very university. But being a woman economist is one thing. Being actually on the board of companies, which I may say so, have the whiff of power about them, is another story. And we in this country are particularly, particularly marked out by having an almost totally masculine financial sector. Move on a bit. Another profession where even now at the top there are astonishingly few women is, of course, the law. I was talking at lunchtime to uh, uh, Lady Butler Sloss, an outstanding judge, but she was never considered for the Supreme Court. There's only ever been one woman on the Supreme Court, and that's a figure that never seems to change. Let us move on again. 
Of course, in the area, another area which is very massively a male area is straightforward business, large business, and I've already talked about the absence of women on the boardrooms of those companies. They are a little bit on the boardrooms of companies that sell almost entirely to women, like cosmetic and uh, perfume companies, but by and large they are not to be seen. Why? I think not because of huge prejudice in these particular professions, but because they are distinctly clubby. They have got used over the years to small groups of people who talk intimately to one another, who fix up deals with one another, and therefore they don't particularly want a strange genus to come into it, and they still have very slowly moved on this issue. Now that translates into politics, because in my experience of politics, clubbiness has been one of the factors that makes the House of Commons very unattractive to some young men and women who would like to go into it. It is a very clubby place. It's also a markedly uh, masculine place, as is evidenced by the fact that, for example, the most popular show of the week, Prime Minister's Questions, is broadly the equivalent of a rather posh football terrace. We get all the time very close to being really a football terrace, where people start throwing epithets at one another and long away give away talking about anything serious it's really basically a test of noise, a test of the savagery at one's remarks, and it's good theatre, but it's lousy politics. Women tend to want to be serious about politics. They're uneasy about it becoming a game, and therefore they tend to find, they tend to be treated as people who are boring and serious in the way that for a very long time Mrs. Thatcher was treated as boring and serious. Now, why is it in that situation that a the only Prime Minister we've ever had who was a woman, came from the party with most people least expected to have one. Why should Mrs. Thatcher be chosen by the Conservative Party when so far, with the illustrious exception of Barbara Castle, there has been no Labour woman who came ever even close to becoming Prime Minister, uh, and that's also true of my party too, I regret to say. So the question is, why was it that Mrs. Thatcher became the person who came to power via the Conservative Party. Well, I'm now going to say something which you may find amusing, controversial, or infuriating. It is that the personal history of many, many young men who are Conservative MPs is dominated by the figure of women in authority. The first one is called Nanny. The next one is called Matron. And it's very easy to move from these figures of great authority when you're very, very young into accepting the idea of a woman of authority leading your party. I'm really serious about this. And I'm serious because I think that Mrs. Thatcher brilliantly used it. She actually frightened many of her colleagues. You get young men who admit they were frightened. They were very scared to, in any way, challenge her. And she, I think, picked up this inheritance of the female in authority at a very young age, from the style and the practice of her party, and discovered very early on that therefore, a lot of the men were what she described them as being, they were simply wets. In the Labour Party, there isn't the same tradition of female authority, but there is, of course, for the whole country, one other. Consider the following controversial thought. Why is it that in democracies that have constitutional monarchs, 
the proportion of women in Parliament is so much higher than it is in countries that are republics. The Scandinavians come out right on top. Sweden, Norway, Denmark. All of them monarchies to the amazement of everybody. Even in a country like Spain, where 36% of Parliament are women, 36%, the highest in the world, by the by, is Norway with 40%. Both are monarchies, very different monarchies, but monarchies. Now, why? Again, I'll put a theory to you. My theory is that it's very easy for young children to see the queen of their country as being the real authority. My grandchildren don't think of the prime minister as the real authority until they're at least seven or eight. When they're two or three, it's the queen. She is the head of the state. They don't use that phrase. They just think of her as the person that is the top of the, the cherry on the icing of the cake. And that means that from very early on, long before they become conscious of sexual differences, young boys and young girls alike believe there's such a thing as the major and most significant power in the country being female. I also think that's got quite a lot to do with the fact that the United States has such a very small proportion of women in any kind of serious political office. So even today, people dream about the possibility of Hillary Clinton sometime in, 19, in, sorry, in 2018 or 20. But that would be the very first woman aspiring to anything like the presidency in the whole history of the American Republic. The idea of a woman in power is something that young American boys and girls simply don't take on board. Let me turn finally to talk a bit about women in leadership. Because I've been very struck by the emergence, particularly in Latin America, of quite remarkable women leaders. But also by one other story, which in some ways is a story that I think I want to put before you. When South Africa moved from being an apartheid state, incidentally a dominantly male one, almost no women at all in the government, of the South African white state, and only one woman who made any real impact on Parliament, and she was called Helen Sussman, and she was entirely on her own. She had no support at all in voting day after day, month after month, week after week, for 10 years against every single piece of apartheid legislation, because she said to me, I was going to make that damn lot walk through the division lobbies, however late it was. There were very few women in the apartheid state who had any power at all. But what was interesting about that was that when Mandela came out, and this is not a story many people know, he established committees at every level of South Africa to talk about the transition and to talk about the new South African constitution. And I meant by that from the lowest local level, parish level, if you like, the ward level, all the way up to the highest level, to the members of parliament, the members of justice, and so on. What he decided were two things, and they're fascinating. The first was that every one of these committees, from the most lowly to the most high, had to have one-third of its membership be women. It could be more, but it could not be less. But being the canny fellow he was, he made another rule as well. And that second rule was that if any committee had no women present amounting to one-third when it met, the committee could make no decisions at all. What that did brilliantly was to mobilize male South Africans to make sure that women came in order to be able to make decisions, which is what they were dying to do. He simply stopped 
any procedure in which that one-third was not met. Now, that meant that women played a huge part in the movement away from apartheid in South Africa. White women, black women, Indian women. Because, in particular, they didn't want war to start again. They wanted to avoid another civil war. And, of course, the amazing thing about South Africa is that despite predictions throughout the press that there was going to be a bloodbath, the total number of casualties was one somewhat drunken white, uh, white apartheid supporter. Only one. And I think that was to do with the fact of the presence of women at every level. Let us switch over now to Latin America and to Africa. Let me take two examples. I could take many more. In, South in Liberia, perhaps the second poorest country in the world, certainly one of the very poorest, a country racked by endless war. You may remember the name of uh, Charles Taylor, who is today before, or was indeed, he isn't now because he's dead, but he was put before the court in The Hague. And Charles Taylor had ravished Liberia in an attempt to try to get the diamond mines for himself and to control them and for his gang to get the money from them, and that was a very large sum of money. Indeed, towards the end of his life, as you probably know, he also invaded Sierra Leone in an attempt to try to seize the diamond mines of Sierra Leone as well. That country was in pieces, fragmented, desperate, violence everywhere. And then, rather amazingly, they elected a woman who was the head of the African division of the World Bank, an economist called Dr. Sirleaf. And she's been, God help her, Prime Minister, President rather, ever since, for the last ten years or so. A frightful job, about as bad a job as you could imagine. But somehow she's managed to begin to build unity and reconciliation between the tribes of Liberia and the different people there. So that at the present time, Liberia is a relatively stable state and is beginning to emerge as something, not as an economic champion, but at least a country which is steadily getting a bit less poor. My other example is President Bachelet of Chile, the successor to General Pinochet, a woman whose father was tortured to death, the head of the Air Force in Chile, a woman whose mother, and was, he was killed, whose mother was also tortured, and who was herself tortured as a student leader at the age of 19 or 20. She came to power. She was elected after Pinochet was uh, pulled out of Chile, primarily by, must be said rather oddly, by Jack Straw, I suppose. But uh, anyway, she came to power, and she made as her absolutely central goal, not vengeance, which would have been very understandable, not carrying out reprisals against the people who tortured her family, but straightforwardly an attempt to try to persuade the armed forces that they should accept civilian control. It took her a very long time. I met her. She was a wonderfully informal person, easy to talk to, knows airs and graces. And she managed, in the end, to persuade the Chilean armed forces to accept the idea of civilian control, which is the case today. Now, both these women, and I could mention many others, Wong Si Ki and so forth, made reconciliation central to their political goals. And in a world ripped by violence right up to now, that is perhaps one of the most important things that political leadership can bring to bear. 
Let me conclude by saying just a word about the effects of living as we do today in such a violent society. I don't just mean Britain, I mean a violent world. And the, if you like, the downgrading of ideas against violence. And I only need to point to things like quite a lot of the new uh, computer stuff in terms of, for example, games and things of that sort, which almost all make a sacrament out of violence, the most extreme violence of various kinds. Now, brings me to that final point, and I want to throw it to you, because I want you to think about it and perhaps come back on it. And that is, what do we do about boys? Boys, more and more, especially young white boys, are beginning to not know what they're there for. I know that's a funny thing to say, but because the manufacturing world in which men had a very clear role and one that fitted almost exactly with various images of what it is to be masculine, to be strong, to be enduring, to be powerful, has almost completely gone away. If you are a computer buff, there's almost no way in which you can prove your manhood. You can prove your intelligence, you can prove your canny, you can prove your clever, but you can't prove that you are a man in the way that being a boiler man or a steelmaker or a coal miner meant that you were a man. And so we've lost that, and we've replaced it essentially by sport. But the sport itself is mostly at second hand. Very often it's following a hero in the football world or the cycling world or something of that kind. It's not so much what you yourself hope to become, or at least you may hope, but you're not going to achieve it unless you're very, very fortunate. So what do we do about boys? How do we give boys a sense of what they're for? of what the object of their lives is, when most of the shapes and settlements and structures of masculinity have slowly ebbed away. One of the last is domination over women. We in this country, according to most recent fact figures, every one in four women will encounter domestic violence. If I can pick up on the press stuff, I don't mean uh, what one might call groping, no. I mean domestic violence, serious, painful domestic violence. And that says something, I think, about the fact that we have not successfully found a way to make young men feel they're valued, to give them a role in life other than one in which they express their masculinity in ways that are unconstructive and unhelpful. So women leaders, yes, they're getting the message about reconciliation, no, not Mrs. Thatcher, but she comes from an earlier generation. And they're getting the message about building relationships. Young men becoming leaders are still, to a very great extent, caught up in that old tradition of warriorship and violence and haven't yet found a way to express themselves as men uh, in ways that are closer to what the world now badly needs. Thank you for listening. This is switched on. It's on. Okay, it's fine. Um, thank you very much, Shirley. That was fascinating. And I think especially your final points have given us a great deal to think about. Um, we've got about half an hour for questions. Um, we have mics 
moving around the room. So if you'd like to put your hands up if you're ready with questions for Shirley Williams. Um, we can, all comments or discussion points, um, we can go straight in. Yes, lady at the back. Um, you haven't said anything. I'm so sorry. Could you, could you just say your name and where you're from? Um, yes, you. Angela Ellis-Jones. I'm a writer. Um, I've read that you have said that one of your uh, proudest achievements is the establishment of comprehensive education in Britain. As someone uh, on whom you inflicted a comprehensive education in the 1970s, um, I, I would like to ask you, why did you send your own daughter to a leading independent school, St. Paul's? Well, the answer is very straightforward. I didn't. Uh, I never have. My daughter and all my grandchildren are at state comprehensive schools right up to the present time. And what you fell for was a story, which was a Daily Mail story, that was... Uh, wait a minute. Uh, and it arose from what I will immediately describe as a very simple fact. My daughter and I lived at the relevant time in Hammersmith. You can check it for yourselves. Hammersmith still had the 11 plus. We, she took the 11 plus and passed and therefore went to a grammar school for one year. And as soon as the Inner London Education Authority allowed everybody at secondary school to move to another secondary school in the whole of North London, uh, she moved to a comprehensive school in London where she took her A-levels and from there got to university. Not one of my children from that day to this has ever been at anything but a state comprehensive school. Yes, gentlemen in the cream journey. Thank you. Uh, John Hume, graduate of London University. Um, could you offer a few points, please, on whether or not all women shortlists in candidate selection um, is a necessary evil? Yeah, I accept, I accept the, 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 the word you use, but I think that it's, it makes um, men in the area feel that they've been very unfairly treated. And in particular, we have that problem in a big way in the Liberal Democrats, because it's a very, we have very localised constituency selection. We don't have a, an A-list of you know, friends of the Prime Minister, so to speak. Um, well, I'm not again, I mean, an A-list is another way to deal with it. And of course, as we all know, um, the Prime Minister had an A-list of outstanding women who he tried very hard to get constituency associations to adopt, not always successfully. And the one or two that were adopted successfully, uh, like that brilliant woman who's the MP for top nurse, um, was not quite what the Conservative Party had imagined because she almost promptly turned into somebody much more like an independent than a Conservative. But having said that, it's a real problem. And I think um, it was a real problem in my own party I think, personally, I think the way to get around it is probably what the, what the Canadian uh, New Democrat Party did, which was to um, cluster together four constituencies in the same region of roughly the same winnability, and give or take a bit. And they then said that the, the four seats would not be members of parliament, sorry, the candidates selected by the four seats, would only be approved by the national party if one of them was a woman. Now, that was brilliant, because what it meant was that the men in two of the constituencies, or three of them, worked terribly hard to make sure that the fourth constituency had a woman candidate without it being mechanically fixed 
by having an all-women selection. So I think you can get over it in ways that uh, work like that. And that's the way in my own party I've been pushing very hard for us to do. Okay. Um, we'll take a few questions in a group, shall we? And then we ask them. Um, lady up there and a gentleman in the front there. Would you like to go first up in the gallery? Uh, Heather Jones, LSE. You mentioned this link between masculinity and violence, which is a perpetual problem throughout the 20th century. We see it in all of the major conflicts. Um, your own mother was one of the most famous pacifists of the 20th century and a very inspiring role model. And what I'd like to ask is, do, do you think there's an innate link between women and pacifism, or is this something that is constructed by society? And how can we, how can we build on that to maybe spread pacifist values more widely to solve this problem of masculinity and violence? Is this on? It is, good. Uh, sorry, my, my name's Dan Filson. I'm just an ordinary citizen. Um, perhaps, I should leave, perhaps I should leave out the word... Perhaps I should leave out the word just, which is indicating a lack of self-confidence. Uh, on the issue of what do we do about boys, if you go back 100, 200 years ago, a little boy could watch his father as a blacksmith being a blacksmith and he could learn the skills of the trade and see his father in action. Um, and these days, uh, the father goes off to work somewhere, possibly in an office, possibly not, but the point is the father goes off and is disappeared whilst they're at work. And perhaps what we should do is enable far more children, boys and girls, to see their parents at work when they are at work and that that would be part of the problem, part of the solution to introducing to children the concept that being a man, in the case of a boy, is not just a question of being a warrior or whatever. Thank you very much. Sorry, there's one other. There's one other. Somebody else up in the gallery. Gentleman there. Sorry, it'll take a bit of time to get them around. Good evening, Baroness Williams, Stephen Sanders. I'm an alumnus of LSE. Um, you mentioned um, the um, practice that uh, Mr. Mandela had put in place of requiring female quorum at policymaking fora. Um, you also mentioned the deficit of um, female involvement on company boards, and particularly in the financial sector. Um, the, the European Parliament is about to have another go at the question of quotas in boardrooms. What's your view on that? Right. Okay. There's three. I'll take them in order. Thank you very much. Very interesting questions. Um, I think probably there is a certain innate tendency to pacifism among women. Um, two reasons, really. I mean, one is that, um, I mean, obviously the, the business of being a mother gets one started and the whole attitude of protecting another person from the very early stages on. Um, but I also think that women much more often are engaged, if I can put it rather crudely, in the simplest functions of biology. In that sense, Freud was right. Uh, the, way, the way I sometimes put it, and I'll put it rather crudely, is that women are familiar with blood, urine, and vomit, and men usually aren't. Almost every woman, whether she comes from a post-professional background or she's a relatively unskilled worker, will come across those very basic functions of human beings 
from a very early stage. A great many men don't, particularly men in the professional ranges, where the business of, as it were, dealing with these <coughs> basic biological functions are ones that they largely escape. It was truer when my mother was young than it is now, when no man would ever have changed his baby's nappies or cleaned up the floor or followed the dog around with a plastic bag and there wasn't one. If you see what I'm trying to get at, I think that that's changing. I mean, many more men are now engaged in these fundamental, very basic human functions. But it's still true that all women are, almost all women, even the richest, and most men who are in very fortunate positions escape from those fundamental things. And that's why I think that you, you, you get less of a sense of the, what can I put it, the value of human beings as human beings, probably my men and you do among women. Um, in the case of my mother, I think what made her a pacifist was essentially nursing in the German prisoners' wards during the First World War and discovering, it's very simple if you like, that when men die, whether they're German or British, they cry out for their mothers in most cases, and it didn't much matter which language it was. The fundamental human link, which was giving away slowly, was the same for people of different nations and different races, for that matter, and that's something which is very important to learn in yourself. So, yes, I'm inclined to buy into the first of your propositions. On the very interesting question about the, with which I agree with my friend, the ordinary citizen, there are no ordinary citizens, there are only citizens. Um, he said that um, he made a very interesting point about children seeing their parents, their fathers and mothers at work, and I think that's a very good thought. And we now have got a bit of that, as you know, because there is now the visiting the office day. But he also touched upon something which is very crucial. My grandfather's father taught him how to harness a horse. My grandfather was still driving a horse when he learned how to harness a horse, so his father's skill was vital to him. My grandfather's ability to harness a horse meant nothing to his son because the horse had gone as the major means of transport and he understood nothing about cars. My father understood nothing about computers. So my brother didn't hold him in great respect because he didn't understand them. My grandsons look at me and think, poor old woman, she doesn't understand the more advanced levels. No, I don't, of computers. I hang around with emails and boring things like that. But they're well into computer games and even designing computer games. How old are they? Ten. So this, this, as it were, no longer valuing the skill that is the no longer existing important skill is terribly important. And as technology speeds up faster and faster and faster, the respect of younger people for older people is bound to be undermined. And it is being undermined. And it's not a case of staring at young people and saying they have no respect. It's a case of recognising the speed of technology carries with it the endless obsolescence of skills. And that means the respect of young people for their parents' skills is necessarily, to some extent, undermined. The third question uh, was the, the one about... Um, I didn't, can't read my own notes now. Can you remember the third question? Sorry. Pardon? Quotas. Quotas for women on board. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm afraid I have reluctantly come to the conclusion that we have to have them. I'm not a great believer in quotas. Um, I try to find every other way around. But I think the obtuseness of the... No, 
I got them. The opportunities of the large banks and companies is such that they probably have to be compelled to have some women on the board, rather like um, compelling some boys and girls to go to the same school. I think that it's been... It, you give them a long time to learn. You give, up, give them points for learning. But in the end, they don't learn. You have to have, have a quota. So I would support a quota, a modest quota, for the banks and the major companies. Um, we'll just take another clutch of questions too. Yes, you've been waiting a long time. Uh, thank you. Um, another gentleman there. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Mark Stickings, another ordinary citizen from originally Orpington in Eric Lubbock days. Um, uh, my question, Baroness Williams, is do you feel, looking back, that you personally were held back, under-promoted because you were a woman? Um, I'm thinking of the 1970s, uh, perhaps under James Callaghan, who was said perhaps not to promote women as much as others. Do you feel that if a man with your abilities might have gone a bit further? Um, Kirsty Styles, journalist. Um, so I hope this isn't too controversial a question. I want to know um, what you would say to the politicians who think we should cut welfare over defence. Um, it's just a, a comment. It may just be my old age hearing, but I could hear you very clearly when you were speaking at the dais, and I'm still having extreme difficulty in hearing now. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. I would endeavour to... I'd, I'd like to have asked a question, but it's off the theme of the evening, so um, I think I'd better not. <laughs> come, and, come and talk about it afterwards. Um, somebody at the back there, put their hands up. Yes, please. Okay. I don't think it's really primarily me. I don't know. No, I think it's it maybe that. Is that better? Do you want to use this one? Use mine. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. Uh, my name is Etty. I'm well. I'm working at City University at the Olive Tree Program. Um, my question is actually related to the title. Uh, we heard a lot about how women are, we can't really find women in influential positions. And I was wondering if there's something distinctive about women that does make them good political leaders. If there's something that you can identify as something that is special for women, I don't know in what sense, that differentiate, differentiate them from men as leaders. Right. Yeah, okay. Right, Mr. Mark Sticking, not an ordinary citizen. I really, I, I'm very surprised that everybody seems to insist upon calling themselves an ordinary citizen because, bluntly, what the hell do they think I am? <laughs> and we're all ordinary citizens. So um, that rather annoys me. Uh, it's a bit like being sort of in the middle of the French Revolution. Um, and you either are, you know, either are a, a, a genuine worker, you're sort of somebody else is going to have their throat cut. Well, sorry, yeah. as an ordinary citizen, let me respond. Um, to Mark Sticking, uh, I think I would say uh, that the, directly that 
I have to be quite honest, I think, yes, it was a drawback. And not just for me, for many other women. I mean, someone like Barbara Castle, who was well known to Kate Jenkins, uh, was a very remarkable woman. But she was never seriously considered, even as a substantial, I think it's fair to say, a substantial possibility. I was considered a possibility I was that much young, just that much bit younger. And to be fair to Mrs. Thatcher, she'd broken some of the, the, the turf in front of me. And so people talked about, would I be the first Labour woman Prime Minister? Well, I wasn't. Um, but then I think almost the funny thing is it's actually gone backwards. Because at that time there was perhaps three or four women who were thought of as potential Prime Ministerial calibre. And now I'd ask you to put your hands up if you can think of half a dozen. I don't think you will. I think in a funny way uh, we've gone round in a circle. And I feel the position of women is, in, at least in politics is no improvement on where it was when I was a young woman. If anything, probably slightly less good. Um, the, the other thing to say, which might amuse you, I mean, you may as well tell the story, but I remember when I was at the um, Ministry of Labour, as it was then called, which we nowadays call Ministry of Employment, um, we had a seamen strike in 1966, which closed down all the docks. And uh, the country was really in a desperate plight. I mean, there was a week when you couldn't buy sugar, another when you couldn't buy salt and that kind of thing. And my minister, who was Ray Gunter, a man, um, had a heart attack and was taken off to hospital. And I was the only... In those days, we didn't have lots of ministers. We had very few. <laughs> ah. And um, I was the only minister left in the Ministry of Labour. I was very low down. I was a parliamentary secretary. But the point of the story is that the then-permanent secretary refused to talk to me at all on the grounds that I was a woman and he didn't think I should be a woman in a masculine ministry like Labour. Uh, believe it or not, for something like three weeks during the strike, which became a national strike and gradually closed the whole country down, the only way I could communicate with this particular permanent secretary, a civil servant, was by the deputy permanent secretary running up and down the corridor between him and me because he wouldn't shake my hand and he wouldn't see me in the same room. Now, that was a very extreme case, but it was a real case. It really happened like that. And so I think one has to say that, the, that if you were a woman, you really ran into a great many obstacles. In answer to the question about what are the characteristics that women should have, the first straight answer to that is a sense of humour. <coughs> women tend to be over-serious. They don't take kindly to responding to one joke by another. They're much more likely to take offence at the joke. And I think what that means is that they have to learn to relax a bit and have more of a sense of humour and learn to take things as they come to a greater extent. Um, if we take the present arguments about groping, etc., um, people have run to the law <coughs> to try to deal with it. I think it's demeaning and unpleasant, but I'm not sure the law is the right place to go for that particular thing, as distinct from paedophilia, rape, and all the rest of them. I think the right place to go is a searing humour. But, you know, there we are. It's a matter of uh, generations, perhaps. But I wouldn't go to the law myself on that one. I would rather, well, I'd rather smack his face. Publicly. <laughs> Let me then come to the, the third question. And again, I'll tell you a story, the lady from Demos. The question you ask is, in a way a bit too easy, I'm not going to avoid it, but I will tell you my answer. On Friday night, I gave a lecture which was called 
the ultimate weapon, colon, deterrent or dinosaur, question mark. It was a question about nuclear weapons, and particularly, well not particularly, but also about Trident. As you can see from the title, it wasn't an element of enthusiasm for continuing with Trident. But in answering the easy question, were you for welfare or defence, I'm going to push you and Demos back to asking the question, what are the priorities and how should they go? It's easy to not have Trident, not easy, but it's possible. To have no defence is really very difficult, and I don't think any party that actually tried to establish the argument for cutting out all defence would ever get elected. So you have to think if you're a politician about what are your priorities and how do you argue them. And I personally am not an enthusiast for the replacement of Trident. I think it's an out-of-date and obsolete weapon. But having said that, I wouldn't avoid the difficulties of the question by simply plumping for the popular alternative. It's too easy. Our Toby Chambers uh, We Care Foundation. Um, back to the issue of um, women on boardrooms, I would like to suggest that the um, MBA programs are one of the big reasons why we don't get women um, into the boardrooms. They're very highly selective, and the banks traditionally have been kind of paying for those programs. Hi, my name is Hannah Omar and I'm a human rights activist. I would like to ask, how do you think women could balance the need to start a family and also to be a leader in their own field? Thank you. Uh, uh, John Strafford. Um, several years ago, when David Cameron became the leader of the Conservative Party and they were having trouble with the A-list, I was asked by the party's board to look at this question of parliamentary, female parliamentary candidates. It came up with exactly the same problem as you had with the head teachers, which was that for every two that were being selected, there was uh, two males, there was only one female, but for every application, there were two males for every one female. And the solution was to try to eliminate as many of the barriers as possible uh, to encourage more females to come forward. If you do that, and if you do that also in terms of women on company boards, how far do you go before you can be accused of trying to manipulate things? Uh, and what happens in cases like um, uh, uh, primary schools or nursing, uh, are, are you going to try and aim for 50-50 in those situations as well? I mean, where do you draw this line between manipulating society uh, or actually giving women a fair chance in a meritocracy? Okay, the MBA question first. Um, it's very interesting insight. Thank you very much for it. Um, I, think, I think I'd take it back to saying I think there's a real problem about MBAs. I don't mean the people are MBAs, I mean the ruddy degree. Uh, because, for example, um, and, and I met, well, I'll go back for a minute. When I was at Harvard, we had a special program which was started by Wolfenson of the World Bank, under which the young men and women who were planned to be managers in the World Bank, who were very high level, were sent for 
a month to the Kennedy School, which I, I took part in the teaching of it, in order to learn about the problems of society, not of the banks and not just of business, but of society more generally. In other words, to put it very bluntly, what were the moral obligations of those who went into business? This lasted for a while under Wolfenson. When he went, it went. And we went back to MBAs being nothing to do with that. I think that the MBA is weakened by the fact that there is very little discussion of the moral compass of business or of banking. And I think there's now an, a, 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 almost a kind of cry for that to be looked at seriously. And one begins to see people like the new, uh, the new chairman of uh, Barclays claiming that he's trying to bring the bank, bank, bank back to some sense of what banking should be about. And that's not just about making money, it's also about one's role in society. And I think the MBA is, most MBAs, I don't know all of them, but most MBAs I've come across lack that kind of more profound thinking and discussion, which I think would make it much easier for women to feel at home in it than they do at the present time. But it's a very good question. Thank you. And if you have any ability to look at the MBA um, prospectus, I'd be very grateful if you'd think about that. Second question, um, the question about um, uh, the, the one that, well, I'll first take the one that was asked by the gentleman above and come back to the family one. Um, I think that you don't break through glass ceilings unless you challenge them occasionally. I quite agree with you that if you tried to lay down that every profession should have 50% women and 50% men, that would be absurd. Even sort of saying that every profession should have X percent is absurd. But there are situations, and I think one sees it in gender, one also sees it in race, where unless you actually allow the people already there to discover something about the talents and capacities of the people who they have excluded, you will never change the selection process to be fair. I was talking earlier about apartheid. White South Africans at that time didn't know anything about the capacities of black South Africans because they never met them. They never worked with them except from a hierarchy down to the lowest kind of unskilled labor. And the same is true of women. If you never know what they're capable of, you'll never appoint them to anything. And that's why I think in banking and in the issue of major company boards, it is not unreasonable to say that a minimum proportion, maybe a quarter or a tenth, should be women, and then let the men who've decided that they now at long last have met the capacities of women decide beyond that where they're going to go to. But break through when it's almost complete blank with almost nobody from that refused group coming into it. On the question of the perpetual question of family and, uh, and career, um, I think what I'd like to say is, and it's maybe a hope, the thing I really hope for is that when I was talking earlier about the, the, the role and goals of boys, one of the things I do find encouraging is that far more young men nowadays take a serious interest in their children. To me, it's an absolute delight to see young men pushing their kids' prams around, showing their kids how to learn things, discovering the pleasures of discussing with them how to read and all the rest of it. Boys now, as young men, 
are taking a much greater interest in their family responsibilities than they ever did in the past and are beginning to encroach into what has been, to a very great extent, a woman's world. I think that's terrific. I remember the Swedish defence minister saying to me that he had to leave the cabinet early to pick his kids up from the nursery. That would be still laughed at in the UK. It would be seen as completely absurd. You would never appoint that man again to the cabinet. But in Sweden, Norway, Denmark and many other countries, it's standard practice for men and women to share in the upbringing of their children and for that matter, an even more difficult area, the looking after their elderly parents, which is going to be a really big theme in the next 40 or 50 years as people go on living to, into their 80s and 90s. So it's really the sharing out, I think, between domestic and career responsibilities between the genders that is the one that offers the most hope rather than the segregation of responsibilities in the way that we've had in the past. And I think that many young men are finding great, great excitement and interest in things, for example, like cooking, where they tend to be rather better than women, in things like raising children. <laughs> I got punished for that. But you know what I mean. You didn't see many men cooks. The old French chef, 20 years ago, unknown. Now the whole place is crawling with experts in cooking, and most of them are men. That's a good thing. Well, after that extremely contentious remark, which we will no doubt come back to later on this evening, um, I'd like to thank Shirley Williams very much for a fascinating evening and for handling so many questions so well. Before I, we, we say thank you to her, could I say that we have a reception for everyone who has time to stay out in the atrium um, you go out of the doors here and turn left and there will be people showing you the way um, and for half an hour we just welcome the opportunity for general discussion and for those of you who couldn't get your questions in to whom I apologise an opportunity to follow up the discussion outside but thank you Shirley very much indeed um,